0: Good morning. It's good to be here with you again as we continue our series Encountering Jesus from the book of Luke and this morning we're going to consider how the risen Jesus and those who encountered him were impacted. We've seen people impacted in all kinds of different ways as they had personal encounters with Jesus, but there's some very, very significant differences in how the risen Jesus and the power that's displayed in his resurrection and is poured into our lives, uh, the difference that that makes. And we're going to see that in the, as we consider the lives of some of those who were, who were impacted by that. Let's just pray before we open God's word. Lord, we're here, and we know that you're here with us, and we know that what we're about to read is your word to us. It is how you reveal yourself to us, and so we're asking you to do that. Help us to see Jesus in a deeper way Help us to understand not just how he impacted those who he encountered while he was here on this earth, but help us to understand how you want to impact us, each of us personally, right now, today, and every day as we spend time with you and encounter you. Help us to see who you are and the difference that can make in our lives in a fresh way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you have heard me say this before, but if you know me very well, you know that in regard to mechanical things, especially automobiles, it's an area where I'm quite ignorant and incapable. I can hardly do the most basic of maintenance things. I've been challenging myself in recent years to do things as hard as changing the oil in my lawn tractor. Yeah, or putting a, you know, a little carburetor kit on a small engine and it's been kind of fun to challenge myself. You know, fortunately, I have some friends who are very unlike me. I have some friends like Jamie Kidwell who has immense knowledge of automobiles and of engines and he could take apart and reassemble and repair and replace the most intricate of things in, in almost any engine you could put in front of him. And knowing what I I've watched him do things when we're off hunting in places where he's got no equipment and he's tearing the most intricate pieces of a car apart and putting them back together. It's pretty amazing. Knowing what I know, observing what I've observed about him, can you imagine if he came to me and said, Herb, your oil really needs to cha- be changed. It's really dirty. And he offered to change my oil for me. How absurd would it be for me to be skeptical and doubt his ability to do something that simple? You know, can you imagine me saying to him, yeah, I, I know, Jamie, you just rebuilt that transmission and replaced that bent, you know, piston and, and, and put a new drivetrain in one of those dozens of cars that you own. But, you know, when it comes to changing my oil in my car, I'm just not sure you're up to the task. I think I'll just figure it out on my own. Pretty absurd, right? But unfortunately, that's kind of a good illustration of how we respond to God in a lot of ways. When he has made this offer to give us a new life. To transform us in radical ways, to use his capabilities to change the dirty oil in our heart and to and to free us from slavery to sin, so often we doubt his capability, and we don 't really believe that he can and will do it it 's really sad this morning. I want to explore as we look at the resurrection of Jesus and and, and the uh, he provides a lot of proofs for that. And we're going to look at just one aspect of that, but of the proofs. But it proves he has the ability to do this whole thing of changing the dirty oil of our heart, so to speak. And we're going to see that. It proves that he has the ability and the power to do that, and he has made us a clear offer. Now, this morning, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus, I want us to consider Project out from the scene that we see here and look at how those people were impacted. People that over the next 40 days after he rose from the dead, saw him, talked to him, ate with him. Let's read our passage. Do we have? We do. Can we get it on the back screen? If Okay. All right. That's okay. Let's read it. We're going to start in uh, chapter 23 just to give context here. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision in action, that action of killing Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in a stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. Chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them. Just Wanted to make sure we had that up there for you. Two men stood by them and said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day. Rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Several translations use the word nonsense. It seemed like nonsense. And they did not... But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So we're told here by Luke that when the women arrived at the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. They didn't find the body of Jesus. Two angels greeted them and said, look, he's not here. He's risen. And when the the women got back from the tomb and they told the apostles what had happened that the tomb was empty that they'd encountered these two angels that they'd said he's risen he's not here he's not dead anymore the response was it's just an imagined tale it's nonsense why would they react that way in some ways we should say well of course they reacted that way no one comes back from the dead right right During his ministry here on earth, they'd watched Jesus do a lot of impressive things. They'd watched him turn water into wine. They'd watched him calm the seas. They'd watched him cast demons out. They'd watched him heal all kinds of diseases. But raising from the dead, that's a whole different level of power and authority. That was a a bridge too far, so to speak. They just thought, oh man, they have just imagined this. This is nonsense. After all, various ones of these apostles had watched while Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. They watched a crown of thorns be put on his head that caused him to bleed profusely. They'd watched him be whipped where his back was like a plowed field. They'd watched him be crucified on a wooden cross. They'd watched his side be pierced by a sword. And they'd watched as he'd been put in that tomb and been there for three days. No wonder... When the women came back and said, he's risen, they thought it was nonsense. From a human perspective, that makes sense, that it's nonsense. And no wonder people today still struggle with it, right? It's kind of frustrating when you know something is true and no one will believe you. You ever had that kind of an experience? Our young ladies from our youth group went to the coast a week and a half ago, and they invited me to go along. I don't really think they wanted me there. They just needed somebody to carry their coolers. But <laughs> Stella Otto and I were looking through a gift shop, and we found this. We thought it was pretty cute. Big Bigfoot saw me, but nobody believes it. Pretty frustrating for Bigfoot, don't you think? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, in my mind, these women had to know. They had to know <laughs> that this is, just, this is just too much. I'm surprised they didn't say to each other, yeah, okay, when we get back, let's just not say anything. <laughs> right? But let's just keep this between us. Because if we say anything, they're going to treat us like Bigfoot. They're going to think we're crazy. Right? But they didn't do that. What They, they knew what they saw. They knew what they had been told. And somehow, that resulted in them being changed, being emboldened to speak out. They still hadn't even seen the G- Jesus raised from the dead yet. They hadn't seen Him personally. That was coming. But they were emboldened. They were changed. And looking back through the scene, you'll remember that the angel told them, trying to help them all with this implausible, impossible scenario that he's risen, the angels say to them, hey, remember, verse 6, remember how he said, how Jesus told you that the Son of God must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified and buried, and on the third day rise. And it says they remembered his words, but they still struggled. They still had a hard time even though he told them in advance. You know, all of you have heard, if you are a regular churchgoer, you've probably on Easter heard maybe dozens of sermons about all the evidence there is that proves the, the historical truth of the resurrection. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. I want to focus on just one aspect of evidence that for me, is so much more compelling and convincing than any other form of of evidence. And that is the transformation, the drastic, drastic and permanent change in the demeanor, the behavior, the trajectory of the lives of a long list of people who had personal encounters with Jesus. Encountering Jesus, that's that's our theme. What happened In the lives of those who personally encountered Jesus alive after he'd been through all those things we just described. What happened to them? You know, if you compile from all the scenes of scripture, the list of those who saw and talked to and touched Jesus, it's an impressively long list. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but the Bible records at least 10 different appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. Mary Magdalene at the tomb, the group of women on the road, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the passage that James just read for us. Peter, 10 of the 11 disciples all together, locked in a room, afraid. 11 disciples, eight days later, Thomas was with them this time. Seven disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 500 disciples all at once, he appeared to James, and then finally, later he appeared to the Apostle Paul. Numerous appearance took place over more than 40 days. And it's important, I think, to notice six out of those ten are groups of people together. Anywhere from two people to 500 people. You know, many of the people are named in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul tells us that at, at the time he was writing First Corinthians, that most of the crowd of five hundred people are still alive. And the implication of what Paul's saying there is, hey, hey, if you're a doubter, go find them. Look them up. Go ask around. Shouldn't be hard to find some of that crowd of 500 people. And ask them. Talk to them. And what's interesting to me is, I, I've never heard of anybody providing any kind of historical, secular historian's uh, writings that they took Paul up on his offer here. That they went and looked and came back saying, oh yeah, I found some of them and they're, you know, they debunked it. They're, they, they, you know, they're, they're refuting The claim that 500 people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead altogether. I don't know of any secular historians who are refuting that. In fact, remember, the initial reaction was, that's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. But something changed. Something changed. When people encountered the living Jesus, risen from the dead, it transformed them in drastic and radical ways. Changed the whole trajectory of their life. One example is the Apostle Peter. He was just an uneducated fisherman. He, along with the others, um, had, were so afraid they locked themselves in a room. Peter, during the trial of Jesus, was so scared. Remember that he denied Jesus three times. Denied even, I don't know the man, he said. And then, just a few weeks later, we find Peter, this uneducated fisherman who was so afraid he wouldn't even admit that he knew Jesus, standing in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to them. Telling them about the resurrected Jesus. Telling them that he died and rose. That he conquered sin and death. And that you could have your sins forgiven because of who Jesus is and what he had done for them. Standing. And his eyewitness testimony was so compelling and so convincing. That 3,000 people responded and put their trust in Jesus. And joined the followers of Jesus in one day. What happened to Peter? <laughs> How does he go from this guy who won't even admit he knows Jesus, who's locking himself in a room because he's afraid of the people who might come and try to kill him as a follower of Jesus? Next was a very real. He had good reason to worry about that. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what caused that, caused that kind of powerful change? But Peter's not the only one. I mean, this, this, these other. This followers, Jesus' closest followers, along with Peter, the ones who were hiding in that room, and Jesus appears to them twice as a group. Historians, secular historians suggest that 11 out of those 12 closest followers of Jesus died a martyr's death. Why? Because they refused to abandon their testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead, that they'd seen him and touched him and talked to him and ate with him. They refused to back off on that. They refused to back off on on the testimony of the miracles that they had seen him do. And they refused to stop preaching the gospel and going anywhere they could, sharing the good news that we could be for, completely forgiven in Jesus. You know, there are many others. <laughs> Remember, hundreds of people saw him raised from the dead. And, and, and many of those were a part of that first church in Jerusalem. And they refused to recant their testimony. Some of them were put out of the Jewish synagogue. They were rejected by their families, lost their job, lost their place to live. And as a result, the book of Acts tells us that those first Christians in that first church in Jerusalem... Faced terrible, terrible persecution. They had terrible financial hardships and deep needs. And suffered greatly because they refused to let go of their testimony about Jesus. What causes people to change like that? What gives that kind of power, that kind of transformation from cowering in the corner to someone who would die for Jesus and live a life long pursuit of him, even when it costs hardship and pain and suffering. For me, this drastic transformation of all these people, these eyewitnesses, these people who had physical encounters with Jesus, is refutable evidence that he did in fact rise. People don't hang on to something that they know is a lie. Whole groups of people Don't hang on and refuse to recant their their testimony if they know it's a lie. They only continue on with it if they know it's truth, because they personally experienced it. So, how? That's, That's a question that this raises. What happened to these people? How and why were these people so deeply impacted and radically changed? How did their life become completely different than it was before they'd encountered the risen Jesus? Another question alongside of that, why and how still right now today are so many people who come into a personal relationship with Jesus, put their faith, their trust in him? How and why are those lives being so radically transformed? And we have lots of examples of that right here in this room people whose lives were going on a destruction path not only in this life but 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 to separation from god for eternity whose lives have been radically transformed and who the power of god is changing and molding and making more righteous why what's causing that how does that happen and i want us to look at some answers the apostle paul answers that question He was radically changed, and he answers that question. He tells us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. When you come into a relationship with Jesus, you don't just get your sins forgiven. Oh, he does that. But he also makes available the same power that raised Christ from the dead to be at work in you. Ephesians 1 says this, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope To which he has called you and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the Apostle Paul says that God's great power and might that worked in Christ to raise him from the dead is something that those who believe in Jesus can personally know and experience in their life. His power that raised Christ from the dead is toward us, too. It's in us. It's it's what he uses to work in us. He says, when your heart's enlightened and you experience this power, he says it's a great source of hope. He wants you to know the hope that this power working in you brings. And so that raises a question. What is this hope? Hope for what? And Paul provides a very clear answer to this question back in Romans. He says that we can have hope for a new life. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. God we still there. God's resurrection power gives you hope and enables you to live a new life that is not enslaved to sin. Let's read that. Romans six, just as Christ was raised from the dead. By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. We're told here that by the glory of the Father, Jesus was raised from the dead. And we're also told here by the glory of the Father, that same glory of the Father, we are empowered to live a new life and not be enslaved to sin. So the question becomes, what is this glory of the father that has so much power to completely transform us and give us a new life? Give us the ability to not be enslaved to sin. What is this glory? It's an interesting because this is a really common word in the New Testament. It's used more than 150 times. And it's all over the map the context of what it's talking about when it refers to the glory of God. And there's something to be learned there. As you look at all the different contexts where it's talking about reasons that our God is glorious, reasons that our God is worthy of being given glory or praise or honor, what makes Him glorious, what makes Him worthy of being glorified, and you look at all these contexts and scan down through them, you end up with this long list of all kinds of incredibly wonderful attributes of who our God is. These passages, when you take them on the whole, you find that He is glorious because of His power. He is glorious incomparably because of His unlimited wisdom and grace and righteousness, His mercy, His holiness... His unlimited forgiveness, His faithfulness, His goodness, His knowledge, His authority. You can just keep making this list. Because when you look at all these different contexts, we see that all of these things make up who our God is that make Him worthy of glory. That make Him glorious. That make Him different and set apart. And and, and above everything and everybody else. It is all of these things that contribute to His glory. And so the implication here, I think, is quite clear. What did it take to raise Jesus from the dead? The thing that took more power and more uh, authority than anything else that could ever happen. When Jesus died on the cross, having the sin of the world placed upon Him, to be brought back from that, remember the wages of sin is death, why did He die? Sin. To overcome that. To overcome the sin of the whole world. That required all of who God is working together. It took His power, His wisdom, His grace, His righteousness, His mercy. All of these things. It took it all. Everything that God had to offer. It took all of that. His glory, which includes all of these things that make Him glorious. It took it all to raise Jesus from the dead. Because there's nothing that ever can or will be harder to do than that when he died because of the sin of the world. Now, Paul says, it's that same glory that is at work in us to allow us to live a new life. To not be enslaved to sin. So, God's power God's wisdom, God's grace, God's righteousness, God's mercy, God's holiness, God's forgiveness, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's knowledge, God's authority. It's all available to us. All of who he is is invested in in enabling us to live a new life. His glory, the same glory that raised Christ from the dead, enables us to not be enslaved to sin. Now that, I don't know about you, but that's hope. I need that. Sometimes I feel like the sin in my life is so stubborn. So much, so far beyond what I could ever overcome on my own. And the truth is, it, it is. Right? As we think about our own lives, I mean, maybe when you think about the things that you wish you could overcome in your life, maybe it's selfishness or pride. I know there's guys in the room struggling with lust and pornography. I know it might be gluttony or gossip, or maybe we're struggling with unforgiveness. Maybe we've started down the path of deceiving people and lying. Maybe laziness, materialism, anger. Maybe some of you are struggling with some kind of substance abuse. I I don't know what it is. I know I've got several things on that list that I'm struggling with. But it's good news because the glory of God is invested in enabling me not to be enslaved to it. You know, sin, as you hear me so often say, is terribly destructive. If if you're struggling with a sin and not seeing victory over it, it already has or certainly will bring about some really devastating consequences. Broken relationships struggle with guilt or anxiety or depression or maybe even physical illness. Certainly it will inhibit our ability to pray effectively and to serve the Lord effectively. Maybe you've even started listening to Satan and he's telling you, this is just who you are. It's never going to change. You're never going to be able to overcome that. It's the way it's always going to be. And maybe... You've unconsciously even begun doubting whether God is up to the task of giving you victory. Or maybe you have discouragement or a loss of hope about God's ability to change. Not just yourself, but maybe somebody you love and somebody you're in close relationship with. Maybe you've got a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend who's just really struggling with sin and it's devastating for them and maybe it's devastating for you and others around you and maybe you're feeling like there's no hope. But the truth is, because of the principles that we're talking about, because of the power that transformed these people who personally saw Jesus and radically changed their life, because of that power, there is hope. Anyone who will come to Jesus and surrender to him, and we'll talk about this for just a second here in a minute, but there's hope. We do not have to feel hopeless. The obvious next question is, how do we tap into this power? If God's glory and power are invested in enabling us to live a new life, the same power that raised Christ, from the how, how do we tap into that? How do we experience that? I want to give a couple of things that Paul gives us advice about this. He says in Romans 6, he tells us, can we get that? uh, There we go. That to access God's resurrection power, you must present yourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness. He says this, Romans 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present, some translations say, offer yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will not have dominion over you. This passage presents us with a choice. You can either consider yourself alive to sin and present yourself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, and if you do nothing, you're doing that. If you just coast along and go along, sin is going to try to dominate you. It's going to You're going to struggle with it, and probably to no avail if you try to do it on your own. Or, instead, you can choose to consider yourselves dead to sin. I don't have to respond to it anymore. And you can present your body and mind to God as an instrument for righteousness. God wants us to recognize His love, His goodness, His trustworthiness. He wants us to respond and to willingly offer ourselves to Him and His glory, His power that He's offering to us to change us. He, he wants us to respond and not just sit there as if He's automatically going to push Himself into our lives. I want to ask, invite you to ask yourself a question in the quietness of your heart. How often do you say something like this to the Lord? Lord, I'm frustrated by the sins in my life. And I'm offering myself to you and pleading with you to use your power to change me. Make me more and more righteous and less and less controlled by the sins that I struggle with. You ever have that kind of conversation with the Lord? Or are you just going along day after day hoping that maybe something will happen? Paul said we must offer ourselves to the Lord. Put ourselves in his hands. An instrument is something you you you, you take up and, and and work with. He's saying, put yourself in his hand. Offer yourself to him. If you don't ever have that kind of conversation with the Lord or you seldom do, just when things get really bad, then it might explain why you are not experiencing on a regular daily basis this power of God, this glory of God that has, that God is offering to pour into your life to transform you and change you and to give you a new life that is not enslaved to sin, we must offer ourselves to Him. If that's not happening, I encourage you to start doing that. There's a second, one more key, real quick. And that is that he resurrection power for righteous living comes through daily faith in Jesus. It says in Philippians, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that depends on faith, that I may know Him. You know, We all know, at least if you're a regular attender at Westside, you know that forgiveness of sins comes through faith in Jesus. But righteousness, practical righteousness, not just being made righteous because our sins are forgiven, but practical righteousness comes through faith in Jesus too. The whole book of Galatians is about that. It comes by faith. It comes by walking daily, trusting Him, asking Him. It really connects up with what we were just talking about. If I'm going to go to battle against the sin in my life and try really hard by human effort to do it, it's not going to work. It takes humble humility of going to the Lord, offering myself to Him, and pleading with Him to use His power in my life to set me free from the domination of sin. I want to ask you a question. Do you think it would take more power to raise Jesus from the dead after all the sins of the world were put on him? Or to deal with the selfishness in your life? More power to raise Christ from the dead or to deal with your lust or to deal with your unforgiveness or your anger or whatever it is that I'm struggling with Which is bigger? It's pretty obvious that overcoming the sin of the world, raising Christ from the dead, after He took the brunt of God's judgment for all that sin, it proves that He vanquished sin when He rose from the dead. It proves that He has authority over it. And so for me to doubt that He can deal with the pride in my life or the selfishness in my life is way more absurd than for me to doubt that Jamie Kidwell can change the oil in my car. Right? It's absurd. And if we're doubting him or if we're not running to him, we need to confess that. We need to turn to him and say, Lord, I am offering myself to you and say that on a daily basis. If you've never put your trust in Jesus this morning, this power is not yet available to you. Come to Jesus, and you can do it right now. Come to Him. Choose Him as the only one who can forgive your sins. Choose Him as the only one who can make you righteous before God. Take all of your guilt away, and who can change you, and bring you to be with Him in heaven forever, completely transformed. Will you trust Him for that? We're going to invite the music team to come up and lead us in the last song, but let's just pray while they're getting set. Lord, we are thankful that your power and your glory is at work in us. It gives us great hope. Lord, it makes us realize that we do not have to be discouraged. We do not have to be disillusioned. We do not have to think that we can never see victory. You can give us victory. Help us to offer ourselves to you and to believe, have faith in your ability to change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.